You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Che. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. I love hearing the teens sing. <clears throat> you know, the uh, Singspiration is always going to have a special place in my heart, of course. Um, Miss Sally and I, we worked with the teens for about three years. And, uh, but you know, sometimes there, uh, there comes a time in a ministry sometimes where in order to take it to the next level, you got to hand it off. And, uh, and I'm very grateful to Miss Alyssa and Miss Mariah for taking over the teens and, and just pushing them and getting more out of them. And uh, so it, uh, it certainly delights my heart to hear them singing, and I'm certainly grateful for that. And I want to thank Pastor for this opportunity also to uh, share something from the Word of God. Um, you know, he's been giving some of us a, an opportunity here lately. We heard uh, Mad Dog Mark uh, about a week ago. <laughs> And we heard Big Ben on Wednesday, so it's my turn. So. Some of you are probably wondering, how many pages does he have? I'm not going to tell you. Not going to tell you. But this is just a cover page, so y'all are safe on that one. It's like, all right, we already killed the first five minutes, all right. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, when you find that, if you'll stand, we're going to be reading verses 13 through 15, a very familiar passage. I move this out of the way. We're good. All right. <clears throat> 13 through 15, and it says, Here in the Word of God, And they brought young children to him, that's Jesus, that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for gathering us here in this hour, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you um, be with me, Lord. Help me to uh, present your word as you've shown it to me, Lord, to be faithful in that. And Lord, we just pray for uh, receptive hearts, Lord. And as always, Lord, we pray that we be not just hearers of the word, Lord, but doers, and me included, Lord. Um, but I just pray you, you bless this time, Lord, and let your Holy Spirit have reign over all that is said and done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So this is a very familiar passage, and many sermons have come from this passage. Um, in fact, Pastor, he, he only recently preached on this, this particular passage, and um, I'm old, so when I say recent, I mean any time from last week to sometime in 2021, something like that. My, I, I find myself doing all that, that all the time. I'm like, hey, just the other day, and then my brother will say, that was three years ago. I'm like, oh, okay. Sorry. He recently preached on this passage, and he emphasized, of course, that the gross error, okay, that the disciples committed in this particular passage was that they were keeping people from coming to Jesus, that we must never uh, do that. However, there's other, other messages have come out of this passage, uh, other, other uh, emphases, if you will. Other applications are made, such as, of course, the comparison of the believer to a child, right? We've heard that many, many times. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to focus in particular on a particular aspect of this passage, okay? One that I, I believe deserves some attention, and that is the motivation of the disciples to do what they did. What went on in their heads, okay, uh, to lead to this mistake that drew a very swift rebuke. Now, you notice it says, Jesus was much displeased. Now, there's one thing about the scriptures is that there's not a whole lot of places that say, where Jesus explicitly says that Jesus got angry, they got upset, okay? So when that happens, we really need to pay attention to it and understand um, 
what what's going on here. So the scriptures want us to know that he got very upset at them. And I'm asking, what was it about their thinking? What was it about their motive, okay, that led to this uh, mistake? Because it's, it's hard to believe that they had bad intentions, okay? I mean, I think we can, we can just assume they probably thought they had good intentions. That's how we operate. We don't, generally speaking, especially Christians, we do things with good intentions, okay? Um, however, they were mistaken. Uh, they must have thought that they had good reasons for what they did. Of course, did they not, right? Here's the master, and he's preaching, and he's teaching. And here come these people uh, who seem to, want to seem to want to interrupt the teach, preaching, at least in their minds, right? They wanted something from Jesus, but the disciples must have thought to themselves, and the Bible does explicitly say this, okay? But they must have thought to themselves, um, they must have uh, imagined that they were doing something good. Crowd control, right? Noise control, uh, or keeping the distractions to a minimum, right? But let me make a distinction here, okay? These people were responding to the preaching, okay? And responding to the preaching is never a distraction. It's never a distraction. And that's something they should not have uh, interrupted. But they were thinking, you know, don't let them crowd Jesus. Don't let them throng Jesus, okay? He has a, he has a sermon to preach after all, right? And so here's the thing. Uh, here's the bottom line, right? And here's where we will springboard into the message, okay? They acted presumptuously. Bottom line. They acted, the disciples acted presumptuously. And we'll talk about that word here in just a minute. So in their minds, they thought that they were helping Jesus. Instead, they were hindering the work. And they thought they knew, they thought they knew what was needed in the moment, and they took it upon themselves to act upon those presumptions. But they were wrong. And again, the, disciple does, the, the Bible doesn't just record that Jesus corrected them. It makes a point to say that he became very upset with them, and he very pointedly and publicly rebuked them. Now, Jesus is tough. We talk many times about the passages where he's tough on the Pharisees, right, and the scribes. He was tough on his disciples, too. Probably just as tough, maybe even tougher. But see, the thing is, though, is that a heart that is inclined towards the Lord will take that rebuke and learn, right? Whereas a heart that is far from God, will spurn that rebuke, okay? But that's, that's a whole other message. We could probably preach on that, but, uh, but we won't. Uh, and we might say that the disciples could be forgiven for their thinking because uh, we probably would have done the same thing. This is something I remind my Sunday school class all the time. When we're looking at the errors that people make in Scripture, we mustn't always think, well, well I wouldn't have done that. We don't know that, okay? We don't know that. We may have made the same presumption. So we're going to look at a couple definitions um, before we move on. But I want to say this, though. Words. Words are powerful. Okay? Words are pow powerful. And people who don't believe that words are powerful are people who do not read or do not listen or both. Okay? And it's important to be sure that when we use a word, we all mean the same thing. So we, only, we only preach from one Bible here, the Bible, Amen. King James Bible. So before we get into that, that, the, this definition, I want to bring up a, a resource, of course. We've mentioned it. Several people mentioned it before. The 1828 Noah Webster uh, Dictionary. I use the one that's online. It's, uh, and, and I recommend using this for a couple of reasons. Um, one of which is when you read the definitions in the 1828 Noah Webster uh, Dictionary, it often gives, it often includes biblical applications. Sometimes it even includes scripture uh, applications. So it's kind of telling you not only what does the word mean, but how it was used in the Bible. So I, I really like that. And, uh, and there's something about its time of publication, 1828, that falls roughly about halfway between 1611 when the King James Bible was, was published and today, okay, so in time. Now, I want to say this. We'll get to the definition eventually, but I want to say this <clears throat> so we understand. King James English is modern English, okay? Some people erroneously call it Old English or they call it Middle English because they, they say it's hard to understand, but it's not. Uh, and so what it was was that in, you know, from an historical standpoint, right, the invention of the printing press, okay, preceded the, the, the King James Bible by about two centuries. It was 1434. And so what happened was 
what the printing press did was that it slowed down, okay? It slowed down the change of the English language. The English language started to solidify and the changes uh, slowed down because that's, this is the thing about language is language does change. And that's what, you know, these people who make these modern Bibles, right? They say, well, you know, the language has changed. Not really, okay? It, it did used to change, but once the printing press came out and, and things were published, English started to fall into this uniform um, form. So by the time the King James Bible arrived, okay, so English had already reached a form almost identical, okay, almost identical to uh, today's language. So what this, uh, what this particular dictionary then does, because of its placement in time, it forms sort of a bridge, okay, the 1828 Noah Webster Dictionary, it forms a bridge between the particular usage in the King James Bible and how we use language today, okay, just for those few instances, okay, where uh, words are being considered archaic. You hear that word now? Now I want you to understand, let's talk about that word archaic, okay? Um, it's not a word we need to be uh, afraid of, okay? The word archaic. It's kind of like the word ignorance, okay? It's not a bad word. Okay, ignorance, ignorance is only bad if you're relying on it, right? But, uh, but anyway, I don't need to be afraid of the word archaic. One time I asked my, my Sunday school class, because we were talking about all this, and I, I said, what, what does the word archaic mean? And somebody piped up and said, it means old. And I said, no, ding, thank you for playing, no. It does not mean old. Simply put, it means something that has fallen out of fashion. That's really all it means. It means something that has fallen. It does. It's not complete. It has not completely left the English language. Otherwise, it would say it was obsolete. Okay, but when it says that it's archaic, it simply means that that particular usage has fallen out of fashion. And so I say, so what? Right? I mean, I say, so what about if something has fallen out of fashion? Does that mean you abandon it? Let me say this, there are a lot of things, there's a lot of behaviors in our society that have fallen out of fashion. They're still part of human society, but for whatever reason, they are no longer considered fashionable. But does that mean that we abandon those things? Can I preach at you for a little bit? How about humility? The Bible teaches that a man ought not to think more highly than he should of himself. Right? Rather, he should think of others as higher than himself. I'm paraphrasing that. I'm not doing a direct quote, but you all understand. But that's not what the world teaches, right? The world, on the other hand, they prize this thing called self-esteem. And uh, let me just say right now, self-esteem, that is a made-up word. Okay? It doesn't exist. Uh, by and large, what people mean, when they use the word self-esteem, really what they mean is confidence. Okay, it's, it's really, you could, in most cases of the word, when, when the word self-esteem is used, you can substitute the word confidence, okay? But the problem is that, the problem with that is just that confidence, real confidence, is based on a track record. It's based on real ability. It's based on something concrete, something real. That's what, con so basically, so what self-esteem turns out to be is confidence without any reason for confidence. And I believe it is a plague in our society. But moving on, how about recognizing a God-ordained difference between the genders? Whatever happened to that? That's going out the window. Not popular anymore, right? The Bible says he created, he created man and woman and that he ordained different roles for them. But that's not what the world says. The world says men and women are equal, whatever that means. That a woman can do anything a man can do, and a man can do anything a woman can do. This started really taking off in the 1960s, and so it's no big surprise that 50 years later it's progressed to now a man can be a woman, and a woman can be a man. But I think it's very uh, obvious that that is uh, nonsense. How about younger people respecting their elders? Whatever happened to that? All the way back in Leviticus 19.32, it said the Bible says we should stand up in the presence of the elderly and fear the Lord for he is God. That's all in the same verse. First Peter 5.5 5 says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. 
Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed in humility. There's that word again, humility, for God resisteth the proud. And in 1 Timothy we find, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and later the elder women as mothers. So taken all together, what does that mean? It means, young people, respect your elders. Um, you know, I, I, I want to relate a story. Went back when I was young, I was, uh, I was 20 years old, and I was interning for DuPont at the time, so I was up in a place called Deepwater, New Jersey. And by the way, you don't ever want to visit Deepwater, <laughs> New Jersey, okay? Um, to get there, you had, I had to cross the Delaware Memorial Bridge, okay? This will tell you something about New Jersey. To get in, to cross the bridge and go into New Jersey is free. If you want to get out, you got to pay two bucks. So there's a, there's a metaphor in there somewhere. But, uh, but anyway, I was, I was working at, in a lab. I was interning there. Uh, it, was, it was in between. I was in engineering school at the time. It was, it was during the summer, uh, summer of 93, in fact. And uh, uh, my supervisor, his name was Bob Morganski. It's funny, there's certain times in your life that certain names, just you never forget those names. I don't know what that is. Like, you forget somebody's name from last week or yesterday. For some reason, I remember their names. And uh, his name was uh, Bob Morganski. He was my supervisor. And the, my lab mates, these were regular employees of DuPont, right? Their names were Clyde Ayers and Bob Vitarelli. I don't know why I remember that. But uh, anyway, one day, um, I hadn't been there long. And uh, Bob Morganski, he, he pulled me aside. And he said... Uh, he said, look, I, I need to talk to you about something. Uh, Clyde's been talking to me, and uh, he's a little upset at you. And I'm, really, what's, what's wrong? And he started talking to me and, uh, about, uh, he said that they, they were upset because I never greet them when I come in the morning. And I don't, when I show up for work, that I don't greet them. I don't say good morning or anything. And, and uh, I was like, okay, I, I didn't realize that they were upset by that, right? But he was relaying a conversation that he had with Clyde, right? And he was telling Clyde, trying to, you know, trying to stick up for me or whatever. He was trying to, he's this and he's that, and give him a break. He's young and whatever. And, but Clyde, uh, I guess he was, he was angry. And, and basically he said, I don't care how smart that little bleep is. He better tell me good morning when he walks in the door. I was like, whoa. <laughs> but you know what? I, 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 I was, uh, this is Bob telling me this, right? And, uh, and I was like, whoops. Uh, you know what? You don't see yourself, especially when you're young. You don't see yourself. And so, um, no, I didn't get offended. In fact, uh, what I thought was, you know what? He, he's right. I mean, who am I? I'm like 20 years old. Who am I to be walking around pretending people are invisible, not greeting them? You know, just, it, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. And uh, after that, uh, I changed. I want to say I changed. Actually, it's funny. It's just how well, certain things in your life that, that change your course, right? But it was that conversation that kind of woke me up and helped made me realize, you know what? I need to respect my elders. I need to respect my elders. Don't saunter past them as if they don't exist, right? And, uh, and hopefully that doesn't happen here, okay? God help us if that's how we treat the older generations. That's not right. People have put their lives decades of their life, service, so that we can have a place to worship. Uh, hopefully that's not named about, about us. But now I could go on and on about these archaic, let's call them archaic behaviors, right? But the important question is this, just because those behaviors have fallen out of fashion, according to the world, right, does that mean that we should abandon them and carry on as if they were never part of uh, polite human society? No, no. So that's how I feel about words. Getting back to what we were talking about, archaic words. Just because they're not part or they're not considered fashionable, that doesn't mean that we throw them aside. Now, that was, I forgot to say time out earlier, so time in, all right? <laughs> Let's get back to our definition. So we're going to look now at what, what is, I was, I'm talking about presumption. And what I've chosen to do is look at the word presume. What does it mean? So we're going to look at what does it mean, how does it happen, and how can we avoid it? Presume. It means to venture without positive permission, as we may presume too far. It's definition number one. Okay, to and we'll, we'll talk about what that means here shortly. 
And then it gives two additional uh, definitions. It says, to form confident or arrogant opinions with on or upon before the cause of confidence. Being confident before you have a reason to be confident. Sound familiar? All right. And then the second one is to make confident or arrogant attempts in that we presume to see what is meet and convenient better than God himself. It's in this particular dictionary. I doubt that it's in modern dictionaries, but it's definitely in this one. So let's look at the first part of the definition, to venture without positive permission. So let's ask ourselves this. We go back to our text, right? Did they ask Jesus if he wanted them to keep the babies away? Did they ask? No, no. Let's look at the next part. To form confident or arrogant opinions before the cause of confidence. Again, did they wait to see how Jesus wanted to handle the situation? No, no, they didn't wait. And so finally, the next part of the definition, to make confident or arrogant attempts, specifically in that we presume to see what is meet and convenient better than God himself. In other words, not only does one think wrongly, but then they act upon those wrong notions. So, did the disciples think wrongly? Apparently, right? Did they act upon those wrong presumptions? Yes, they did. So here's our analysis then, right? So the disciples, they acted presumptuously in three important ways. Number one, they failed to ask of the Lord. If you're taking notes, this is a good time to start writing down. Um, um, they failed to, number one, they failed to ask of the Lord, right? Number two, they failed to wait upon the Lord. And number three, they acted upon their presumptions as if they knew better than God does. Just remember, Jesus is God. Pretty harsh, right? But I believe it's a fair analysis. When you look at it like this, uh, you very quickly realize, if you know your Bible, right, that there are numerous examples in the Bible where this breakdown takes place. Uh, one that comes to mind is King Saul. Remember King Saul? He was supposed to wait. He was supposed to wait for the prophet Samuel to arrive before they go into battle. He got impatient. Okay, Samuel didn't arrive exactly when he wanted him to or exactly when he expected him to. So he took it upon himself to make an offering to the Lord. Big mistake. And there are many more, but they all very nearly follow this, this pattern, okay? Um, there's a very important piece of this word presumption. It's very, it's very closely related to the word assumption. We all know what assumptions are, okay? But it's a little bit different because of that little three-letter uh, prefix, right? Pre. And it distinguishes the word from other forms of assumption. It is the pre. And what does pre mean? What is pre? Before. Okay. So it denotes then a breakdown in order, just as we examine. The Bible depicts this sort of breakdown multiple times because God knows it's in our nature, okay, to be presumptuous. It's in our nature. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture, and we know this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so looking at this, looking at the mechanism then of presumption in Scripture, there's only one way that we will profit by it, and that is that we must see ourselves in it. We must see ourselves in the scriptures. The Holy Bible is, uh, is not a highlight reel of sin, okay, or you might say a low light reel, right, of sin, but rather it is a mirror that, to show us ourselves. We talk about this all the time. People who are up here on the pulpit. The Bible is a mirror. It has to be that way. The same pride that leads us to presume upon the Lord is the very same pride that prevents us from humbling ourselves and placing ourselves in the context of scripture and admitting that's me. That's how I am. Okay? That's what I'm really like. So now getting back for just for a moment to our passage of Scripture, then the disciples presumed, right, that Jesus would not want to be bothered by these little children, so they acted rashly, and they were swiftly rebuked. But let me cage this presumption in a way that maybe is a little less, a little more uncomfortable to hear. When we presume upon the Lord, what we're really saying is this. If I were God, this is how I would do it. And hopefully nobody's thinking, not me, Brother Danny, I don't do that. Think again. Because we do it on every level. We do it on every level. Why would we think that we don't do it with God? In school, 
we think, if I were the teacher, I'd do things differently. When we're at work, if I were the boss, if I were in charge, I'd do things differently. Or in church, if I were the pastor. Uh-oh, right? If I were the pastor, I'd do things differently. On and on we go, right? So it's not a great leap then uh, before we're doing that to God as well. And that is what the disciples did. If I were Jesus, I wouldn't want all these interruptions. It can seem innocent from our point of view, right? But if we don't stamp out this sin from our lives, and it is a sin, it becomes a habit, and it progresses, and it can grow to something quite monstrous. If I were God, I'd do this. If I were God, I'd do things differently. If I were God, surely this would be my reason for, having, for doing that. We, try, we, we even misattribute meaning to things that happen in our lives because we just want to play God with our own fates. And let me, let me give this example, too, so we can, I mean, help us understand why this is such a serious sin. And I wouldn't say put yourselves in God's shoes. That would be presumptuous, right? But you who are parents, you understand this, right? You know how it is when your child, go, they do things, they assume, okay, that you would approve of this or the other or that you would want this or that done. They go and do it without even, you know, asking you. And I remember I, I've had this conversation with my children many, many times, where I say, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? And they say, I thought you'd be okay with it. I think we're all familiar with that. And what do you tell them? What, what do you tell them when they say that? Did you ask me first? Right? Okay, so I'm saying if we can understand that as parents, right, it's not so much of a stretch then to see that God holds presumptuous thoughts and actions in very deep, deep Contempt. Some of the passages in the Bible where God is the angriest contains presumptuous thoughts and actions. Now going back to King Saul, right? It cost him the kingdom. It cost him the kingdom. It's very serious. God is much displeased. Now we will, for practical reasons, dive once again into the mechanism of presumption and how to avoid it. I definitely want this to be profitable for you all. But first, I want to share with you a personal testimony. Of it's is a very painful time in my life, um, but I'm pointing it out because it, it was a time when I was presumptuous. And now look, I'm gonna tell you right now, some of you're gonna disagree with me as far as wh whether or not I should be applying it to this situation just because of the nature of it. Okay, but stay with me. Okay, just kind of focus in. This happened years, many years ago. Um, we were, uh, the family and I, we were on our way to Ohio uh, to celebrate Christmas with Sally's family. And many of you know Sally's from Ohio. Uh, we met online, that's another story. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, but this turned out to be just, this was a, it was a nightmare road trip. It was just the worst, absolute worst, not just because of what happened or what was to come, but the, the, the road trip itself. I mean, all the way from about Austin to Texarkana, um, it was, it was just nonstop uh, traffic jams and construction and traffic jams and construction and then more construction and more traffic jams all the way through. And we were just taking the interstates uh, back then. So we were quite exhausted. We only make it, it made it as far as Texarkana and we got, we got into a hotel and uh, bedded down for the night. And, uh, and then I got a, a text message and uh, it was from my sister-in-law, Georgie, and she said, when you get a, some time away, give me a call. I need to talk to you. And she had never done that before. And I was like, something's really wrong. And uh, so I called her, and it turned out that on that very day, uh, Sally's sister Mary had taken her life. She had taken a, an overdose of pills. And uh, the next few days were just uh, bizarre and painful and surreal. It's like it's, it's when you go through something like that. It's like it's like it's not happening. You can't even believe it. Um, I remember listening to my two sisters-in-law singing in the Christmas cantata over at Faith Baptist, singing to to the Lord while knowing that their sister is is basically dead, hooked up to life support on tubes. Um, seeing Mary hooked up to tubes on life support, knowing that there was no hope for her. And everyone gathering around, all these memories, right, just kind of flood whenever I think about it. And all the things that followed the funeral 
uh, still celebrating Christmas, then going to go plan the funeral. And one thing that sticks out in my mind, too, about that time is just the, the quietness of snow. It snowed the day we got there, and it snowed the day we left. And I always remember that, just the deafening silence of the snow. And uh, we were left with a lot of questions, to be blunt. I didn't lose my testimony, though, at all. I mean, as far as um, I didn't question God. I had questions, but not for God, okay? It's just, like, it's not, it's not in my nature to question God. And I'm not saying that to sound sanctimonious or anything, okay? What I'm saying is I'm, I'm a stoic, okay, and uh, basically. And uh, when you're a stoic, you, you, you don't question God. You, you accept you accept, and uh, but whatever the case, if you go back to my uh, go back to my Facebook page on that day, uh, you'll see that I posted God is good, God is good no matter what. That doesn't mean it didn't hurt; it hurt intensely, but God is good. So far, so good, right? So then, a couple of months later, we received some blessed news. Sally and I, we were expecting a baby, and boy, did I wax poetic. I I waxed the elephant, Pastor, as you say, but uh, said a lot of things. Life in the shadow of death, and I, I went on and on about it. Although we had suffered a terrible loss, God had seen fit to grant us a child, to comfort us, to show his loving kindness in our sorrow, to remind us that he and he alone was a giver as well as a taker of life. On and on and on I went. Uh, posted a lot of it, too. You shouldn't emote on social media, but back then I guess I didn't know better. But I went on and on about it because I was so excited. And you know how we are. We like to just spiritualize things. Uh, we have this, this, this tendency, this want, this need to spiritualize everything sometimes, especially when you're going through a, a tough time. But I thought I saw God's will and plan for our lives perfectly clearly at that time. And I was filled with excitement and just righteous certainty at that moment. But I was wrong. I was wrong because that baby, that baby died. And to say that I was crushed would be an understatement. It was, uh, I was bitterly disappointed and ashamed too at that moment. Because see, from a, from a philosophical point of view, right, things had essentially blown up in my face. And there was nothing but death and sorrow to deal with after all. And uh, we would go on to lose another baby shortly after that one. And, uh, and I remember thinking, how did I get that so wrong? I didn't understand at the time. But it's, it's fairly academic being so removed from it now. It's fairly academic for me now. Did I ask God if that's what he meant? No. Did I wait on the Lord to show me what lesson he wanted me to learn out of all that? No. Did I bridle my tongue against proclaiming my perceptions and my assumptions? No. Now look, please don't come, after, don't come up to me after the service and say, oh, Brother Danny, you know, God understands. You were sad. It was a tragedy. It was, it was a terrible time. And, you know, you, you, you were caught up in emotion. And um, Look, I mean, if, 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 if that's what you think, that's okay. But, you know, if... You're missing the point of what I'm trying to say here, okay? We have to understand that even in the face of great tra tragedy, especially in the face of great tragedy, we have a Christian responsibility to guard against presumptuous thinking. When we are emotional, that's when it's easiest to go astray. And so we must be vigilant always. Now, there's an epilogue to that story, and I will get to it in time. But right now, let's go back and look at those three aspects of presumption. Number one, if you haven't written it down already, write it down now. Number one, did you ask the Lord? Number two, did you wait on the Lord? Number three, did you truly discover thought, God's thought? Or did you insert your own and then act upon it? So I want to give some practical advice on these matters because I believe that looking at it through this three-pronged approach, okay, uh, we can be careful to avoid presumptuous thoughts that lead to vanity, that lead to sin. However, I also recognize that these three 
these three things, they each deserve their own treatment. They could each be a sermon in and of themselves. So I'm going to have to be uh, decidedly brief for the sake of time. But know this, that oftentimes uh, understanding a problem is half the battle. Okay, so once you know the precepts, uh, and really this is nothing new. You all have heard all this stuff. Uh, then you can draw upon your knowledge of the Bible to be vigilant and to be circumspect, right, in your walk with the Lord. So, point number one, did you ask of the Lord? Let's, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Let's go ahead and read that. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. It says this, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. There is both a glorious invitation and a glorious promise in that God gives his children. And all of his promises are meant for his children. Of course, we had... Uh, Brother Angel preaching about that just not too long ago about how uh, God wants us to ask him. He's, he, he's our father. He doesn't mind us asking. He wants us to ask. Uh, but of course, that's only for his children. So look, if you're not sure that God is your father, you can have a time at the end of this service to get that cleared up. But, uh, but for now, he says, ask. And there are just too many examples in the Bible where people fail to ask of the Lord. And the results are very nearly always uh, disastrous and even catastrophic. In James, you don't turn here uh, just yet. You could if you want. James chapter 1. Someone hit it twice. But James chapter 1 verse 5, it says this, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Another glorious promise, right? God wants you to ask him for wisdom. It's very clear. He doesn't beat you up about it, right? And you go to the Lord and say, Lord, um, I'm just not sure how to proceed, okay? I mean, he doesn't say, uh, see you again, right? I mean, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, are you kidding me as long as you've been saved? As many times as you've been to Sunday school, you still don't know what to do? He's not like that. Right. We're like that, yep. so, okay, because we're, we're just imperfect people, okay? But, uh, but God is not like that, not at all. But there is a caveat, a warning. In the next verse, it says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not, man not, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. So we must ask in faith. Believing that God will answer. I've seen too many times in my life already um, Christians, especially younger ones, but sometimes older ones too, they pray like this. Is it, Lord, please bless this decision that I've already made. <laughs> I've already decided what to do. I just need you to bless it and tell me it's okay. Now, they might not word it like that, but that's what they mean. And then they shield their questionable decisions and errors by saying, well, I prayed about it. So you can't say anything about it. We see that all in all uh, too many times. But no, uh, to ask in faith means that your will has to be surrendered. There is not room for God's will and your plans. Okay, it's one or the other. So if you ask of God without being fully prepared to hear a contrary answer, you are not asking in faith. So... There's more on that. We can go on an hour about that, but we won't. Moving on to point two. Did you wait on the Lord? Now, one of my favorite passages to teach on in Scripture is the book of James. Love the book of James. We're going to get to that eventually in my Sunday school class, but I'm still slogging through Romans for some reason. But uh, there's so much practical advice in it. You can spend just hours and hours and hours and hours studying James and never, never exhaust it. And one of the things it talks about is patience. I think that was mentioned this morning, wasn't it? Patience. It says in verse 4, Let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now look, I hear some people say, whatever you do, don't ask God for patience. Okay, I respectfully disagree. 
Okay, I'm sorry. It's just that because look, look, look at what it's saying. What is the perfect work of patience? That ye may be perfect, mature, and entire, wanting nothing. Who doesn't want to grow up? Okay, who doesn't want to mature? So Christian, you have to learn to be patient with God. In the faces of trials and hardships, I argue that you're going to react one of two ways. With patience or with passion. I really believe it can be boiled down to these two options. Patience, trust in the Lord's plan, and waits for His will to be made manifest in your life. Passion is based on emotion, and it drives us to do rash things, to try to pluck the fruit before it's time to follow our hearts. And there is a promise to those who wait on the Lord. It's found in Isaiah 40, 31. You don't need to turn there. Everybody's heard this one. It's emblazoned on... Everything from t-shirts to paperweights, but it's very familiar. It's, and it says this, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. All these things are for those who wait patiently upon the Lord. And they will not happen when you want them to happen. They're going to happen when God wants them to happen. Now, note on timing. Here's that epilogue that I promised you. Um, now, some years later, we were over at uh, Bible Baptist Church, and, and I used to have this, uh, I used to be in, in charge of the ushers uh, back then, and, uh, and I had one usher. His name was Nuno, Nuno Garza. He was amazing. He was a Down syndrome man, okay? He was a Down syndrome man, but he was my best usher. He was on the ball. He always knew exactly when things were going to happen, you know, the order of service, when to be here, when to be there. I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. And uh, one day, though, uh, he choked on a pill. He was taking a pill, and he choked, and he stroked out right there, had a massive stroke. And, uh, um, and he, was, he was put in the ICU, and, uh, and, and there was no hope. There was no hope. He was not expected to live. But his mother... A very dear lady. She didn't want to let him go. And uh, eventually it would have gotten to where she wouldn't have had a choice. He would have just died anyway. But what we were trying to do is, is, is get her to, to, to let him go. And uh, so, the, I mean, the, my pastor at the time, he, he called me up and uh, he talked to me and, 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 and Sally. And uh, basically he sent us over there as envoys with a special mission to talk to the lady, talk to the mother, and get her to see the wisdom in letting him go instead of him just going on days and days on, on, on life support when there was no hope. And so I talked to her, and I talked to her about, um, I talked to her about what, what a wonderful servant Nuno was and how he lived a life that honored the Lord and I told her many things. I counseled her many things, but I, t I told her the best thing you can do for Nuno right now, told her the best way that you can honor your son's life is to let him go. Let him go be with Jesus because that's where he's going to be. As soon as they pull that plug, he'll be with the Lord. And, uh, and so we, uh, we said what we had to say to her, and uh, she was very receptive. And we still weren't sure what she was going to do. But so we stepped out of the ICU. Back then, they let everybody in the ICU. Um, that was before, well, long before COVID. But uh, so we, we left the ICU, and we heard within minutes, I mean, within minutes, we heard that she had made the decision to go ahead and pull life support. And, uh, and so she did that, and she, uh, it was not, not without tears and wailing, okay? It was, it was terrible. It was, it was a terrible, still a terrible time. But she did let him go. And, um, but here's the thing, I bring this up because Here's the thing. Would I have been equipped to counsel her if I had not gone through what I did with Mary? No. No. It's like, what are you saying, brother? Do you mean God sometimes lets you suffer so that you can help other people in their suffering later? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I had no control over the timing. Okay, had no idea what was going to happen. Had no idea. Uh, but I did trust the Lord. Even through those hard times, um, because see, I mean, faith—faith faith is not knowing. Faith is not knowing. You know, when you're going through a trial, you're going through a hard time. Faith is not knowing 
what's the lesson I'm supposed to be learning here? Okay. Faith is trusting that there is a lesson, trusting that there is going to be good, uh, that God's going to bring something good out of it eventually. So, so anyway, there, there's more on this whole uh, subject, but we need to move on uh, to this last prong, right, in our approach, right? Did you truly discover God's thought or did you insert your own? Isaiah 55, 8, 9. Let's go and read. Let's, let's turn there. Isaiah 55, 8, 9. Again, very familiar passage. And it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God, He, he can be pretty blunt with us sometimes. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. His thoughts are so much higher than ours. They are past finding out, as the scriptures say. I was talking to somebody one time about just the vastness of God's thoughts compared to our own thoughts. And I drew a little mental picture for them. And, and I kind of want to recreate that right now. I'm going to do a little. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to just do a little um, exercise in thought. And hopefully nobody panics at that word exercise. So we're going, no, I don't speak exercise. No, we're just going to be with our thoughts, okay? So, um, so imagine, picture this behind me. I rarely leave the pulpit, but I will. Picture this. Picture a big circle. Can you can you picture a circle that touches that part of the ceiling, right? The roof or ceiling, and then it touches that, and it touches the floor. Okay. Some of you who remember your math can figure out how to do that exactly. But but what do we just imagine a big old picture, a big old circle. Okay. So what we're making now is that's a that's going to be our pie chart. Everybody know what a pie chart is? You understand? Who's thinking about pie right now? Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that's our pie chart. We're going to fill it in here in just a minute. So I want you to think, think of all the math that you did learn in school. So let's do a show of hands here. Let's do, how many people learned what numbers are and how to count? That should be everybody. Now keep your hands up. <laughs> Hopefully, I hope that's everybody. Okay, let's keep, now keep your hands up. How many people, okay, and then how many people learned addition and subtraction? Okay, multiplication, division. Okay, word problems. All right, we're good so far. Algebra. How many mastered algebra? Oh, wow. Yeah, I knew that was going to drop some hands. Okay, any of the pre-calculus, trigonometry, elementary analysis, any of that? Calculus. Let me go higher. Differential equations. Uh, discrete... Discrete mathematics. Wow. Okay, I'm impressed. I'm impressed by those who still have their hands up because I had to drop discrete mathematics. I, I took it in school, but uh, the uh, the professor was a he was an adjunct professor from China, and I did not understand a word he said. I'm sorry. It just I'm I'm good with accents. Okay, I really am. But he it was just he he just sounded like he learned English that morning. Okay, so so I had to drop that. Okay, so most of us take 10, 12, 10, anywhere between 10 to 12 years of mathematics in school, right? So think about the collectively, think about all that math that you learned in 12 years, okay? And so now imagine that you go to college and you become a math major. Do we have any math majors? Anyone? No, come on. Have teenagers raising their hands. All right, so imagine you go to college then and you become a math major, and that's when you're going to make a very shocking discovery, okay? What you just spent 12 years learning, your whole lifetime at that point, because you're only 17, 18, okay? All the math that you've learned up to that point, your geometry, your, your, your calculus, whatever it is, right? If we put it, what's behind me? What, what's behind? Pie chart. If we put it on the pie chart, right? Can you all see this? It's about that big. OK? 
Okay, the pie chart being all of mathematics. And here's all the math you learned. And that's all of mathematics. Okay, that's what you find out when you, uh, you find out that you only, you only scrape the surface. You spent your whole life just scraping the surface of mathematics. It's a vast, vast universe uh, field. So that, I do that because that is just a little picture, okay, that only begins to describe how our thoughts compare to God's thoughts. It's not even an adequate picture, okay, but it's a little picture that might get you start thinking. Because there's people who, who acknowledge, yes, I know God knows more than I need wisdom, but they kind of think like, like, like maybe I'm here and God's here. No. Or maybe I'm here and God's here. No. No. He's infinitely high. And I'm just taking a no stone, no stone left unturned approach today, but I wanted to paint that picture for you because it gives us a little inkling of just how much higher God's thoughts are than ours. And so I ask you this then. Why don't you just trust the Lord? Okay. How many times have you been wrong in your lifetime? How many times have you been wrong this week? How many, been, how many times have you been wrong today or since lunchtime? Okay. So I would ask you that. And then I ask you this. How many times has God been wrong? Never. Not even once. The Bible tells us in Matthew 6, and this is my favorite chap chapter of the Bible. You don't have to turn there, but the Bible tells us this in Matthew 6. Take there, take, therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But here's the thing. We come to these crossroads. Remember, Pastor preached about crossroads a few months ago. Come to these crossroads. We come to these difficult situations. I need to pay my rent. I need to pay my mortgage. My marriage is in trouble. Or I need to find a job. I've got a situation here, Lord. But he knows. He knows. So just trust the Lord. Ask in faith. And be patient. There's our, our principles, right? And make sure your deeds and your decisions match up with his word. It really is that simple. Is it easy? No. I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. But it's possible when you have faith in the Lord. For with God, all things are possible. That was our, that was our, our verse when Sally and I got married. Um, the verse for our, our wedding. For with God, all things are possible. And I truly wish for each and every one of you to discover that in your lives. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.